a directing staff approached me and he said, candidate three, do you know where you are? And I said, no, sir, I don't. He said, you've walked so far north that you're actually outside of the exercise boundary and you haven't hit a checkpoint. So none of that is going to count towards your overall nav. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is in my family. We weren't out there to take country, we were out on your That was our job. I did feel a lot of regret. Friends were still getting killed. It got to the point where you know you were going to funerals quite Do often. Do I lead under fire? And that was a heavy responsibility, I guess, on my shoulders that I didn't want to screw up. War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Not what you can do for yourself, or what can you do for your country? The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. Monica Georgieva is a veteran of the Australian Army. She was the first female to attempt 2nd Commando Regiment selection and SAS selection, the latter of which she attempted twice. I spoke to Mon about her colourful upbringing, selection stories and the rest of her military career. I'm Alex Lloyd, speaking today over Zoom with Monica Georgieva. Mon, welcome to Life on the Line. Thank you for having me. Let's go right back, Mon, and talk about your childhood in Bulgaria. Born in the, I guess, mid to late 80s. I think growing up back in the day, it was probably different. I mean, irrelevant of which country you lived in, probably pretty different here in Australia as well. There wasn't, I guess, as much technology and Bulgaria itself had just come out of being a communist country under communist influence. Things were pretty different. There's a a fair bit of crime, a fair bit of uh, poverty. I mean, I remember vividly my grandmother having to line up at a bakery at like four in the morning to try and get some bread because there was such uh, shortages. So life was definitely rather different from what it is now. And what did your parents do for a living? My parents did a bunch of stuff. My dad actually used to drive those big trucks. He had to travel overseas a fair bit as a result of that. So when I was little, I didn't actually see him for months on end because he traveled extensively through Turkey. He lived in Iraq for a couple of years and he actually got stuck overseas in Kuwait during the first Gulf War. He was in no way involved with the military. He was there working when the war started and he just couldn't exit. So we ended up not seeing him for about a year. And then once he transitioned out of that, my mom and dad opened a cafe. They owned that for a little bit. They then sold the cafe, owned a supermarket, eventually opened a nightclub. We had that for a number of years. That was pretty interesting for me growing up as a child. I actually spent a fair bit of time there (laughs) as a young kid. He eventually opened his own brewery. Cafe to supermarket to nightclub to brewery. I can sort of see where that (laughs) journey goes. Yeah. What was it like being a child in a nightclub? Were you there during the prime hours of its operation or more just in the daytime when things were a bit quieter? (laughs) Don't judge my parents would be our preface with that. So I actually did go there at night, which sounds a bit strange, but we didn't really have, uh, I guess, babysitters as a concept back then in Bulgaria. And so grandparents used to look after kids. And when that wasn't an option, because both my parents worked and I didn't want to stay at home on my own, being, you know, quite, quite little, so I would have been primary school school aged, uh, they used to just take me with them. I used to ride a skateboard and I would do that. I would actually ride my skateboard around on the dance floor before 
all the clients would start coming in <laughs> and then I just kind of hang out at the bar. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes fall asleep and uh, then get taken home by my parents. Yeah. That would be a very eye-opening experience. How old were you at this point? Maybe seven or eight. Don't want to fuel any particular stereotypes of the Balkans, but were there any... Um... <laughs> see any more colorful moments during the nightclub hours yes i did so i guess two things probably stick out the most everyone had the ability to carry weapons in bulgaria and even though i don't think that licensing was as strict as in australia you know a lot of people that did had weapons knives guns that sort of stuff and it was quite common I remember one night the police came into the nightclub to do a random search and literally within moments of them entering, you could just see people throwing knives onto the dance floor and they were just like scattering everywhere <laughs> because they didn't want to get caught with a weapon on them. And then as soon as they would leave, everyone would just keep going as it was. So I thought that was pretty strange, I guess, as a kid. And then another moment that sticks out in my mind was um, my dad was very strict about people not carrying guns inside the nightclub, but there was a shootout outside. And I remember trying to get out because I was worried because my parents were at the front and I didn't want to, you know, them to get in trouble. And then the bartender basically saying, no, you can't go outside just in case. Yeah, that's another moment that sticks out. So you have that rather insightful colourful, well-rounded, let's say, childhood experiences. <laughs> when is it you sort of first leave Bulgaria, not so much for travel, but in terms of like a living situation? I got sent to boarding school when I was 13 in Edinburgh in Scotland. And it was a decision made based on the fact that education in Bulgaria wasn't, I guess, as good as I could get overseas. And my parents could afford to send me and they wanted the best for me. So I ended up yeah, getting sent to boarding school when I was 13 and in Edinburgh, and I was there for five years. I completed my secondary education there before then moving to Australia. You prefaced your earlier nightclub answer not to judge your parents, but that actually seems like you've gone from your grandmother on the breadline to them running very successful businesses and been able to send you overseas. And they also recognize that you are going to possibly get a better quality of education and opportunity abroad and made the rather I'd say, selfless decision to maximise your potential chances. So I think credit to your parents. Yeah, I have to say, coming from really humble beginnings and, and you know, living in a, what was a two-room house to them being, yeah, you know, quite successful and they worked very hard to achieve that and having the ability to send me overseas to what was a very expensive school definitely is a credit to them. And, and you know, forever in the day, my mum still gets upset on the phone because, you know, I got sent away when I was so young, but uh, it was definitely selfless. But it set me up and if it wasn't for that decision, I probably wouldn't have ended up, you know, living in Australia and being where I am today. So you've said boarding school, Edinburgh, and very expensive. So is that Fetty's College? Yeah, yes, it is, yeah. I was born in Edinburgh and have a Scottish ancestry, so that's the school former Prime Minister Tony Blair went to. It is a very prestigious, posh school, as they would say, over in the UK. What kind of cultural shock was that going to a Scottish boarding school compared to that lifestyle in Bulgaria? For an average Aussie growing up, they might get their first culture shock joining the military if that's the career path they go down, whereas I think that would have been the earlier culture shock for you, that big transition there. Yeah, it was. And I, I think it was quite cocky. As a, I was 13 when I went there and I thought I was all grown up and could just, you know, it was going to be great. And then 
my parents came with me that first time. They, they spent about a day there and then they had to go back to Bulgaria to go to work. So all of a sudden I was in this new country. I spoke English quite well, so that wasn't an issue. But I was um, a fairly shy child and I think found it pretty hard to actually make friends with people because I didn't say a lot. And most people actually assumed that I didn't speak English very well. And it was it was a little bit of a shock to the system for sure. And it was pretty hard in my first year. But then looking back, once I sort of committed to being there and, and making a life there, I really enjoyed my time in, in boarding school for what it was. So yes, you push past that homesickness, as it were. Mm-hmm. Then I guess what first draws your interest to the military? Was it while you're in the UK or was it after you moved to Australia? I think it was before that. So I, I vividly remember being little and dad coming back from overseas and giving us some presents. And he gave me these shoes. They were camouflage pattern shoes. And in Bulgaria, you don't wear shoes inside because everything is, you know, yeah, so dirty. So you never wear shoes inside. And I remember wanting to keep my shoes on all the time because I thought they were just like the coolest thing. <laughs> I was always drawn to the military and I, I don't have any heritage. So my parents were never in the military. I don't have any brothers, but I always had an interest in it. And when I was at boarding school, they used to send, um, they call them liaison officers from the different services to the schools to see if anyone was interested in, in joining later on. And I actually went to two different services sessions, one with an army liaison officer and one with a navy liaison officer to look at joining the British services. And I came very close to joining the British Navy, then changed my mind last minute, decided to go to university and get a degree first, and then kind of circled all the way back around and joined the Australian military. What then inspires you to move all the way to Australia? You've studied at school, you've gone to university, got a degree, which I want to know what that degree was as well. But then you decide to move down under rather than somewhere else in Europe or back home. I guess for me, you know, after spending five years in the UK, I was kind of like sick of it. I was definitely sick of the weather. Um, Edinburgh, <laughs> as you probably know. Oh, I, I lived in London for a year. Yeah, I get it. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's cold. It's miserable. You never see the sun. And I actually met some Aussies and they just made, made Australia sound pretty cool. Uh, I have to be completely honest. I didn't know much about the country. So I went uh, on the internet and, and researched, you know, Australia. And I was like, this is really awesome. I want to I want to move there and convince my parents to send me to university in Australia rather than the UK. Being an international student, we had to pay the fees up front. So it was actually in my favour that Australian universities are slightly cheaper than British universities. And that's how I managed to, you know, win over that argument uh, and get get sent here to go to uni. (laughs) And what did you study here and which uni? I went to ANU in Canberra, to the Australian National University, and studied a um, Bachelor of Arts majoring in international relations and Spanish. Okay, so you're in Canberra. I can then see you might be running into soldiers studying at ADFA, at bars or nightclubs, that kind of thing. And is that when the military threat of interest picks up for you again? I actually used to work at Mooseheads, which when I tell people that, they tend to laugh. Um, that makes sense. Moose- okay. Can you explain <laughs> Mooseheads for the listener? Mooseheads is probably one of the larger bars in Canberra and, you know, very often frequented by the ATFA RMC officer cadets. I wouldn't say that meeting them in that environment would make anyone want to join the military. That's <laughs> probably going to have an opposite kind of effect. But um, I actually, once I finished uni, I moved to Melbourne for a little bit. And it was just when the economic crisis happened in 2008. It was very hard to get a job. I just finished university, you know, my whole life I'd studied, wanted to have this meaningful experience, this meaningful job and ended up working as an administration assistant for a superannuation consultancy. So I can't think of anything that was, you know, more boring at the time. 
started thinking about, you know, what I want to do with my life and kind of thought maybe I would join the reserves. I always had an interest in the military. I thought if I joined the reserves, it would give me something else on the side to do. I'll see if I like it or not. And yeah, I ended up joining the reserves when I was in Melbourne and pretty much joined in May 2009. As soon as I then went to Kapuka to do my first training block as, a, as an officer cadet, I pretty much fell in love with the army and decided to transfer full time uh, and go to RMC the following year. So you go to the Royal Military College RMC, Duntroon. How does that experience compare to Scottish boarding school life? I'm curious. <laughs> you know, they're very similar in, in a lot of ways. Boarding school is super strict. You know, you could only leave the school at certain times. We used to study on a Saturday as well. We had this very strict regime in the evenings of when you had to do your homework, you know, you had to be at your desk with your door open and all those things. So I guess in a lot of ways, boarding school prepares you quite well for the military. And I think People laughed. They were like, you were actually more regimented before you joined the army than, than after. So as far as that was concerned, I don't think it was a very big uh, shock for me. I loved Kapuka. Most people go to Kapuka. They really hate their experience there because it is just so strict and so regimented. When I was at Kapuka doing my first training block before going to RMC, I actually thought to myself, if I love this place so much, there's going to be something seriously wrong with my current life and I need to, you know, make some changes and yeah, I, I loved my time at RMC. More so, I really enjoyed field. I have to say, I didn't enjoy being back in barracks as much. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's RMC. Like school, but better activities and better weather. Got it. Mm. So you graduate in mid-2011 into the Royal Australian Artillery Corps. Did you have a career plan or any particular goal in mind or just going to see where things took you? When I joined RMC, and I don't know if that's the same for most people, but you kind of don't really understand, I guess, the different cores and how core allocation works. And so RMC training is prefaced on infantry-based training, even though it's not an infantry training establishment, it's an all-core establishment. But all the stuff you're learning and how to lead a platoon on offensive operations or defensive operations, it's kind of infantry-centric. And that's what I love doing. And then when I was graduating, I realized that uh, at the time, women weren't yet allowed in some of the combat corps. So I couldn't actually go for infantry, which is what I wanted. And I hate to say it, but going to artillery was kind of like a consolation prize. It was the only thing I could do, the closest thing I could do to what I, I wanted, which was a combat corps. So it was a bit of an anticlimax for me when I when I graduated and realized the stuff I actually enjoyed doing, I potentially wouldn't be able to really do anymore. Well, I know it's a few years later, you find yourself sort of attempting to get yourself in that field, doing those kind of skill sets you want to be really doing. And that starts with your attempt of the Second Commando Regiment Selection Course in 2014. Can you talk me through how you got from that consolation prize, as you said, to how you found yourself on that particular course? I've actually transferred three times. I've got transferred three times whilst in the army. <laughs> so I've got, you know, experience across three diff very different corps. When I graduated into artillery, I, I realized that. So I got sent to 20 STA, which is a, a UAV unit based out of Brisbane and realized that it really wasn't for me. From there, I actually transferred to a logistics corps. I wanted to post up to Townsville and the idea was that there were three infantry battalions up in Townsville and I could somehow, I don't know, get my way into working for, for one of them. While I was posted up in Townsville, literally by chance, I saw a, um, an ad on the intranet, which is the internal army internet, talking about, uh, it's called Infantry Accelerated uh, Training Course that was being run out of Holsworthy down in Sydney. And at the time, I didn't actually realise that it was the course which non-combat corps officers and soldiers, as well as the direct entry soldiers, 
were doing as part of their preparation for two commando selection. And I called one of my mentors who used to be a, an instructor of mine at RMC and I'm just to have a chat. I'm like, hey, apparently this course is now open for women. I'm really interested in doing it. What do you think? And he was like, oh, I think this is such a great idea. You know, you should definitely do it. You should do commander selection. And and I was like, whoa, wait a minute, what? I didn't even realize commander selection was, and um, you know, open for women to even attempt. He's like, yeah, yeah, it is. And then kind of one thing led to another and I found myself doing this accelerated infantry accelerated training course, which was probably one of the best courses I've done in Army. I had a lot of fun. And then going for two commander selection the, at the start of the following year. How was that selection experience with the commandos? And were you the first female to attempt that? Do you know? Yes, I was the first female to attempt. The experience was very short because I actually failed to so the 3.2 kilometer run which is part of the entry test, which I passed on the entry test. I then subsequently failed that same run on day one of selection and into commander selection, they don't give you a retest. And once you fail that, that's it. Your journey is pretty much over. So it was short-lived experience. (laughs) Short-lived. So that didn't go so well for you, but then... Your next posting was to the SASR, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So came off commander selection on day one pretty much and then went back to Townsville and I was very lucky to get posted to SASR the following year. I was posted to the unit for two years, ops officer role in the unit. I then attempted um, yeah, SAS selection in 2015. Before we jump onto the SASR selection attempt, with the failure at Commandos, how did you feel about that, I guess? How did you analyze your own performance on that? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So the AIT, I guess the actual course, gave me that opportunity to work with soft personnel to commando personnel. And my performance on the course was was really good. And, and I always knew that that run was going to be kind of my nemesis. It's a very hard run for anyone that has ever, ever done it. It's a 3.2 run with webbing, which weighs eight kilos, uh, rifle and um, boots. For smaller individuals, whether male or female, it's always going to play a bit more of a role because it's such a large percentage of your of your body weight. I mean, I was disappointed to fail that run onto commander selection. I definitely thought that if I could pass the gates and be there at the end, I would be successful. But I was also determined to try harder, train smarter, and, and hopefully then pass that run and, and get on, on the SAS selection, yeah. I'm not going to ask you your weight, but what is your height and build? Uh, look, I have no issues talking about <laughs> about weight. I'm pretty small, so I'm, I'm 163 tall, so I'm probably on the shorter side, even though I'd like to think I'm average height for a woman, <laughs> probably on the shorter side. And I weigh about 58 kilos. And I think actually when I was going for commander selection, I was a little bit lighter, so probably around 56. Yeah, so definitely not... Like, I wouldn't say small for a female, but yes, compared to all the males who are going to be in that environment, yet you'll fall at the smaller end of the spectrum. There's a natural physical disadvantage there. And of course, they're testing more than that. They're testing psychology and resilience, but the physicality, there is that baseline component that's going to be challenging you. Yet you would just accept that, okay, I have this natural challenge I have to face with the nature of that run, which was a factor in the commando selection course you know that there'll be that equivalent challenge again at SAS selection, but that doesn't stop you. So I'm curious what motivated you to go for it. I mean, it hadn't been achieved before by a female at that time. So why were you so determined? Okay, look, I didn't pass that. I'm going to go give this a go, this rather legendary thing in the community that is 
SAS selection. People have asked me in the past, did you feel like you were doing something to progress things for women? It was never anything like that for me. I mean, it's probably going to sound selfish, but I, I literally wanted to do selection for myself. I, want, I thought the job, you know, especially after posting to SSR, I mean, I thought the job was super interesting and, and something that I really wanted to do. You know, to your comment that it hadn't been done by a female before. Yes, you know, that, that can be quite daunting from the perspective that you just don't know, is it going to be physically possible for me to be there at the end of that course? based on my physicality. But as far as, I guess, having looking up to people, having role models and ha- having mentors, for me, the gender didn't really play an important role. And I had a lot of role models who were, in fact, serving in SASI and who I'd met previously through my career, who are male, but who I aspired to be like. And that also helped me with my you know, drive and, and determination to try, at least try and, and be there at the start line. I think that's an absolutely awesome, correct way to approach it, that the gender aspect just wasn't a consideration for you. It's just, are you as an individual capable of achieving X, Y, and Z? In that case, talk me about the training you undertook to prepare yourself for SAS selection and before we get to the actual start line of the course, as it were. So I'm very lucky for any of us that were posted in the unit, to be honest, because obviously you had this firsthand experience and, and you had the um, PTIs who were like the physical training instructors posted to that unit who would help us with preparation, training programs, etc. And I was very lucky to have two who I think are some of the very best um, in their field. And that's Kevin Turnan, who's now out and runs 98 Gym in Sydney. And um, another member who's still in, so I probably won't talk about his name. But so these two gentlemen were just amazing. And they they really helped us out. They created training programs for us. I mean, I remember doing a trial run for the 3.2 and Kev coming in at like six in the morning when he didn't really have to before we'd start work just to time the run for me and then help me out. Yeah, very lucky in that regard. The training involved, you know, a lot of weightlifting and strength training, trying to build some more muscle in my case, and then a fair bit of running. And for anyone that knows anything about training, trying to get both endurance and running ability up at the same time as gaining muscle and gaining strength, it is very hard to achieve those two things at the same time. And usually with athletes, you prioritize one over the other, but unfortunately we couldn't really do that. And in the time frame we had, we kind of try to work on all those things at once. And I have to say, you know, we did pretty well, but there's only so much you can do. Kev used to always say mass moves mass. And in my case, there's only so much more weight I could gain that was functional, you know, with my frame. All right, Mon, tell me about your first attempt at SAS selection. So I passed the entry test just. I had to retest the run, I'm pretty sure, that first time. Passed the run and then found myself on day one of selection. And, you know, it was pretty scary, pretty intimidating, very obvious to me that, that I was the only girl on the course. And I think I put a lot of pressure on myself based on that fact that I don't think that it was external. I think it was more of an internal thing. On day one, you have to do the 3.2 kilometer run again. And, you know, much like the two commander course, I didn't really want to have to retest that. And I literally passed by like a second. So you have to run it in 16 minutes or less. And there was me and one other guy. And I will never forget, as we run the finish line, the guy who was calling at the time said 16 minutes flat. (laughs) And I was really happy. I mean, some people would be upset with that. They'd be like, oh, I should have run faster. I was like, yes, I made the run and I'm in. (laughs) That's all that matters. 
look, I don't want to keep harping on about the standout fact that, yes, you were obviously the only female on that course. And I don't know if this had changed by the time you'd done SAS selection, but I've had veterans describe the, yep, stand there naked in a hangar bay while you're inspected for a while in the cold, and then you all put on the new uniform. And of course, you're all treated the same. Did the other candidates ever sort of discuss it with you, or you're just in the same situations, in the same shit with them from day one and facing the same challenges, let's get on with it. There's no discussion of it on the course. I think before the course, I had people come up to me and, and kind of talk about, oh, you know, what do you think about having to take all your clothes off and, you know, for the kit inspection? And it honestly wasn't as big a deal as people imagine it to be because, first of all, everyone's got their clothes completely off. Secondly, everyone is so petrified about the fact that they're on selection and it's going to be so hard that no one actually cares about the fact that they're naked right now. And I often used to say if that was the hardest thing I was going to do in selection, then it would have been pretty easy. But uh, that was definitely not one of the harder things I had to do on selection. And it's very short, you know, and they do it for a reason. It's, well, I think there's a couple of reasons. First, they want to make sure you're not smuggling anything in that you're not supposed to have. And second, it just kind of brings everyone down to the same level. It levels people out. As far as the other candidates on the course, I, I didn't have any dramas. We we're all on the same boat getting beasted. Look, it's very tempting to go day by day on a selection course and recount those experiences, but in the interest of time and not making this a seven-hour podcast, what I'll <laughs> ask is, can you tell me about one of the challenges or tasks that you felt you did really well at or really enjoyed, and then one you found more challenging or was one that even led to your defeat, as it were? The parts of selection I really enjoyed, and I look back, and even the second one I did, you know, I look back on it quite fondly. In particular, there is a day, it's called the Lone Warrior Day, where you kind of, you go around doing, completing this stance, but you're by yourself. I quite enjoyed that. There was a moment there, I was walking through Bindoon up to the next stand, and it was on sunset. And I was like, this is so cool. You know, I'm in the bush, just kind of walking. I'm having a lot of fun. Like, this is awesome. So that's probably one of the ones I enjoyed. There is uh, definitely a moment there or one day there that's probably my most unenjoyable day on selection. And that was a, it's called a patrol competition day where you have to, um, again, complete a bunch of stands as a patrol. But we were made to run between all the stands. And as we mentioned earlier, my ability to run with webbing was probably suboptimal, especially, you know, when compared to some of the blokes who are definitely faster than I was. It was very, very hard for me to run at the pace that, you know, I thought I was supposed to run at. And I felt like I was the reason why the patrol was slower than it was supposed to be. And what happened was if you got to a stand and there was another patrol already there doing that task, then your patrol would get punished and you would have to do, I can't remember, I think it was something like 80 push-ups every couple of minutes for as long as you waited for the other patrol to finish. And you know, that could be an hour. And so in my mind, I was the reason why my patrol would have to do all these extra push-ups and actually withdrew out on request on that day for that reason. You know, whether that was the right thing to do, I don't know. At the time, I definitely thought that was the right thing to do. So that's probably one of the harder things for me. That's such a conundrum because are you doing the right thing there for the sake of the team and that sense of greater good possibly, or should you have pushed on? I don't know the answer to that. Maybe you can ask SAS officers who've run selection and see what they think, but that would have been very hard, I imagine, to make that decision because you're obviously a very determined person and you're there to push yourself and test yourself. And then withdrawing an own request sounds harder than actually being just failing or being told, get out. It is. And there's also reasons why people withdraw and request. And, you know, you can't judge them unless you're there in there, that headspace at the time. I had people come up to me afterwards, people who worked in the unit and say, what were you doing? You know, 
it doesn't matter. You're going to do push-ups anyway. But then, and I had other people that said, hey, I understand. I understand why you did it. So I think it's a, you know, it's a personal thing. And it's a decision that at the time I thought I, I, I had to make. Obviously, running with weight is your nemesis, but you're, yeah. But obviously, you're also very tough psychologically. And I'm curious as to as I continue talking to you to try and unpack more how you've built that very resilient mindset. But I've heard the classic story of super strong, tall, or big athlete, or just someone really athletic and from whatever background comes on the course and then doesn't get through. Not because they can't perform physically, but they tap out they choose to withdraw at own request for whatever reason and it's something i've never attempted so i'm not going to pass judgment on that but those withdrawals are a psychological decision rather than a physical yet your choice to withdraw there sounds more at a physical level so i'm curious then how you i guess built yourself up psyched yourself up to keep pushing and again it sounds like if you'd been more proficient at the run you would have kept going and who knows where you would have got to on that course and we'll get to your second attempt but how do you look back on your own mindset and psychology at the time i think there's always room for improvement like i have reflected on my decisions to withdraw off the course and, and why I did it and whether I made the right call, whether, you know, uh, I could have tried harder, lasted longer or whatever. And I think there's always, you know, room for improving your own resilience. How you get resilient? I mean, I think if I had the actual answer to that question, I'd probably make a lot of money. It is the buzzword of the year, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I think part of it is my growing up and my childhood, which was different in a lot of ways, probably meant that, I'd seen some adversity, you know, early on in life. And I can only speculate as to whether that contributed to my mental ability or my, my ability to persevere through certain things, maybe. But at the same time, you know, you don't know which way it's going to go and how that's going to affect someone. So it could also have had you know, negative impacts as, as, as well as positive impacts. As far as preparing mentally for selection, you know, I actually don't think I did that in a deliberate manner all that well. And definitely if I was to give anyone advice now, I would say that they should really look at deliberately preparing themselves mentally for the course as well as physically. But you are right. There are people that come on the course who are just so fit and they just seem like, you know, they're cruising through some of the harder things. And then when they withdraw, you often wonder why they're doing that, you know, and I, I often get quite jealous and think, geez, you know, if, if I was as fit as that, if I had that ability, you know, if I was 20 kilos heavier and I could do those things, you know, I wouldn't withdraw again. I only say that from my perspective, but who knows? Well, you withdraw on that first selection course. You're not carrying the weight of the first female aspect or the glass ceiling. You haven't broken aspect. That's not phasing you. You're just focusing on your own goal setting, which I think is brilliant. And then you decide to go and give it another crack. I think the following year, what made you turn around and decide, let's put myself through this again? So I came off on day nine and I just felt like maybe I just need to train a little bit harder. And I was actually so excited about doing selection again that I came off the course and, you know, had at least a, like a week break because my body was a little bit bitter. And Kev, my coach, I was just hassling him. I'm like, can we start training again? Can we start training again? He's like, you need to have a break before we then start. You know, we've got time. And I was actually really excited about about doing selection again. And maybe I was sucker for punishment. I don't know. But I genuinely thought that there was still hope and, you know, I could do it. <laughs> so how did the first nine days of attempt number two compare to the first nine of attempt number one? Were the tasks, even if the detail was different, were they similar in focus and structure and that kind of thing and something 
it was a problem or a challenge you were familiar with? Yeah, the general structure of the course hadn't changed that much between the two years. So definitely there was a little bit less of that unknown in some regards. I don't think if it was a challenge, but definitely there's a certain day where you do a nine kilometer webbing run, but it's not necessarily in a certain time. So just try and do it as fast as you can. And it's over these like really horrible hills. So you end up walking some of them. But I remembered where the turnaround point was. And on my second go, I remember running past the turnaround point and thinking, I'm like, why are we still running? Like I'm I'm a hundred percent certain this is where you turn around for the nine K mark. And then later that day, the, the guy who was running selection who I knew because I, I worked at the unit, came up to me and said, um, candidate, I can't remember what number it was. He's like, so what did you think of the run this morning? I said, uh, sir, I'm pretty sure, I have a feeling it was longer than 9K. He's like, yeah, it was. He's like, I just decided that I'm going to make it. I can't remember if it was like 12 or 14 or something. And he thought that was the, the funniest thing. He was like, haha, like I tricked you guys. He thought it was going to be 9K, but, but it was actually longer. <laughs> yeah, so it was pretty funny. Let's talk more about that second selection attempt. Once you get past that day nine mark, what are some other of the highlight experiences? I mean, how far do you get? Do you get to the lucky dip or happy wanderer phases? Yeah, I I didn't get to lucky dip. I got through halfway through uh, happy wanderer, uh, which is the navigation phase. And we did ours at Lancelin, which for anyone that's been out at Lancelin, it's actually quite beautiful, but it's basically sand dunes and salt bush. So if you're not walking on sand, you're walking in this like really, really horrible salt bush that is sometimes much taller than, than me uh, as a person. And, and, and it just rips through clothes and it's just horrible to navigate through. The way it started for us, we got put on a couple of buses and then taken to Lancelin. Uh, and then when we got there, it was, I think it was something like 7K insertion walk in to the start point on this really like horrible sandy road. For anyone that's ever walked on sand carrying weight, it's uh, probably not the funnest thing to do. So you walk, walk in and then in the next morning, you basically start a solo navigation phase where you get given a checkpoint and then you walk to that checkpoint. Once you reach it, there will be a, um, a directing staff there who will give you your next checkpoint and you keep doing that until you're basically told that the exercise or that part of the, the selection course is over. And you're not allowed to speak to any other candidate, even if you if you see them. And the whole idea is that you are completely on your own the whole time, navigating and, and walking through the bush. So tell me about your experiences with Happy Wanderer. How did it go and how did it end? On the one side, I really enjoyed Happy Wanderer because I like being on my own. And, you know, it means that you're not getting potentially like in the shit or getting like yelled at by, by directing staff or getting punishment PT sessions. What really undid me up to the Happy Wanderer phase, we still carried a lot of marching order that is like full load out with a pack, which was quite heavy. And I think over time and then during Happy Wanderer, which is basically you carrying that heavy pack over many, many kilometers each day, really affected my body's ability to continue because the weight ratio was so high that at times I was carrying close to body weight for myself, which again, it wasn't sustainable for me over long periods of time. And it basically got to the point where on Happy Wanderer, I could, I was like crawling through some sand dunes and I, I was just, I couldn't even walk at times and started feeling a little bit unwell, like things got distant and, and far away. And when I made that call to withdraw, by the time they picked me up, 
and took me back to the central location. Like I was, I couldn't really speak properly. So I think largely it was just maybe exhaustion. I remember getting fluids and, and sugar and I remember the medics couldn't get any veins and like then trying to get a vein in my hand. But then I recovered quite quickly after that. So I think it was just, you know, yeah, exhaustion probably. But that's what it came down to. I think the weight carriage and the percentage of weight that I had to carry for my body size is probably what really undid me that second time around. Do you know how far you walked or what number of checkpoints you did or didn't hit? Or I don't know the f- overall. I know the first day I walked just over 20K on the Happy Wanderer. I couldn't tell you over the whole of selection. Yeah, I wouldn't have a clue. Is there a story where you went outside the boundary on this phase or is that a different exercise? That was my first. <laughs> that was, so you do a little Navex in the first part of selection, which isn't Happy Wanderer. And the first time I did selection, we were heading out on a first checkpoint at night. And I was so pedantic about following and bearing at night because you know, the last thing you want to do is get lost at night and having to backtrack and do all those things. You know, We get tracked with GPSs, which are attached to our packs. And I got told subsequently that they basically watched me walk in a perfectly almost straight line, but directly north, so completely in the wrong direction for where my checkpoint was. And it's what I'd done is I'd actually set my compass for whatever reason. I was really tired, wasn't paying attention. I'd set it due north and I hadn't set it on the right bearing. And so when I got to what I thought was my checkpoint in the morning, I couldn't find anyone. There was no directing staff. There was no nothing. So I called it in and said, hey, look, I think I'm at the right spot, but there's no one here. And they said, candidate, you need to check your nav. It's like, oh, this is crazy. You know, I'm, I'm sure like I kept the bearing. And then I realized that I don't know. I don't know where I am. And I thought, well, I'll just try and do a resection, which basically you try and pick features on the ground and then you calculate your position based off that. Again, for anyone that's navigated in Bindoon, it's actually pretty much impossible to do a resection there because we don't really have very defined like mountaintops or hills. So I ended up walking probably like half of that morning up and down these hills trying to find a way to do a resection. And I was so stubborn that instead of just calling it in and saying, hey, I'm lost, can you help me? Which was a, a thing you could actually do. And a lot of candidates apparently did opt for that at some point. I was like, no, I'm going to, I can find where I am. And ended up walking over 25K that day and not hitting a checkpoint at about, I think it was three in the afternoon, I heard this buggy noise. And then while well, directing staff approached me and he said, Candidate three, do you know where you are? And I said, no, sir, I don't. He said, you've walked so far north that you're actually outside of the exercise boundary and you haven't hit a checkpoint. So none of that is going to count towards your overall nav, which was great. And then uh, he basically told me where I was and then I had to go on my way and, and get to my actual checkpoint and then do another one that night. So I reckon that day I probably walked close to 40K, actually. Sometimes being stubborn isn't the best way to be. People listening to this podcast, they might have read memoirs by SAS veterans or listened to other interviews with them. They've got snippets of what selection is like. And I think there's a general kind of cultural understanding of the things you go through. Then we have something like the SAS Australia TV show on Channel 7, run by British directing staff and doing a few exercises. I look at it thinking, never heard or seen that as a selection (laughs) exercise before. I don't know if you watch the show or not, but how do you, I guess, combat general public perceptions or sometimes misconceptions of what selection is when you have shows like that, painting a certain picture and then explaining to your average civilian or even a veteran who's not attempted selection what it's actually like and what are some of the realisms of the challenges, the hardships, the deprivations and so on? To answer your question, no, I haven't, I haven't seen the show. I've heard of and um, people have commented on it. 
It's funny you say that because I had recently someone asked me, a civilian asked me if that's what selection was like. And I kind of had to laugh and I said, well, no, we don't. I think there was a scene there where they, they're fighting in the mud and punching each other in the face with boxing gloves. I was like, that is definitely not a thing. We do it on selection. <laughs> I don't see how that would barely add to anything. But It made for good for TV, but that was about yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, it does. And, and that's the thing. It is, it's a reality TV show and, and it's it's supposed to be entertaining. And I often say to people, if you're really interested in, in knowing what selection was like, like there was obviously that documentary, Search for Warriors, back in the day, a two-part thing, which, you know, is fairly accurate. I mean, it doesn't show everything on selection, but it's definitely a fairly accurate uh, representation of what some of the course was about. I don't really tend to talk about selection that much to people. So I guess uh, when you say how do you deal with the public opinion and stuff, a lot of people don't know. People that I meet every day, that they don't know that I've done it or I, I don't really talk about it, so I don't really get asked any questions. <laughs> That's an easy answer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, look, Monica, I don't think anyone listening to our conversation now will question just how damn tough you are and how disciplined and resilient your mindset is. The fact you attempted the course, let alone twice, three times, if you want to count the commander version as well, makes you much more badass than most. You actually got yourself there and did the work. But it's also human to be disappointed by not succeeding in the manner that you wish to. How did you find bouncing back from that second failed attempt and I presume deciding, okay, that's it, I'm not going to give that another go? It was hard and I was disappointed and I think I definitely remember the day I was driven, we got driven back down to um, Perth from Lancelin. It kind of like dawned on me that that was it, like that was the end of the journey. It is quite hard, but then you kind of just get on with it and you know, I had to go back to work and I, I had a job to do. Then one thing led to another and I actually by chance ran into a senior officer who had been kind of like a mentor of mine. I'd known him from my postings previously to Townsville. I ran into him by chance in Canberra. I was there for work and he um, mentioned to me that women were pretty much like allowed in infantry, like no drama. And um, if I wanted to still do that and still core transfer that I could, but I would, you know, have to do basic infantry course like, like everyone else would. And the course was actually starting in literally two weeks. So he said, you need to make your mind up on the weekend though, because, you know, there's a cutoff and you're not going to make the cutoff. And he's like, you can get on that course and then it's entirely up to you. Like if you pass, then you'll be in infantry. If you don't pass, then, then you won't. And so I had this really quick transition that literally happened in August. So I'd come off selection in May. And then in August, I had this choice to make and actually sought out some advice from one of the officers at SASR who I really looked up to. And he decided to go for it. Yeah. And so then I all of a sudden put in my core transfer papers and ended up in the School of Infantry in Singleton doing my um, ROBC, which is my Regimental Officer Basic course for infantry. And then in January 2017, you are a rifle company platoon commander with three platoon A company. ROBC was great. Again, you know, I just loved the trade. I passed everything, passed the physical requirement, which is called the PESA, which I'm actually not sure if they do that anymore, but definitely did at the time. All the female candidates, soldiers and officers at the time were getting posted to one area. So I ended up getting posted to one area, which I actually really wanted anyway, up in Townsville. And yeah, I took up the command of Triple Tuna Alpha Company for a year. And I was very lucky because that was the year one area was gearing up to become the RBG, which is the Ready Battle Group, MIG. So it basically meant that the whole of the first half of the year was a lot of field time and a lot of lead up training for us to get certified. Uh, and I think it's one of the best times to go to a, um, a unit because obviously if you're going into a reset phase, it's not a lot of that going on. People tend to be doing individual courses, so you don't get as many opportunities to command and lead the guys in the field. So I was very lucky to have been posted there at that time. 
You'd finished RMC and been given, as you described, the consolation prize of the Artillery Corps, and then you make attempts at getting into special forces in what is most akin to an infantry role in certain respects. And now you're finally in that kind of infantry role. I'm sure that's very enjoyable and satisfying to be in that kind of core that really resonated with you. Yeah, it was. You know, I've never been much of a, I never really cared much for like hat badges or hat colors or whatever. But I have to say that I was immensely proud to have been given the infantry hat badge because I felt like I, you know, worked in some way, shape or form for the better part of seven years from when I graduated RMC to finally getting to where I wanted to be. And yeah, it was, it was really great. And just working, you know, I'm out, I'm out of the military now, but I, if there's one thing I really miss about the army, that's the people. And I look back at my time at Wanaria as some of my best time in army. And I met just some amazing people there, to be honest, that I still keep in touch with now. And then later in 2017, you're posted to support company Wanaria as the recon and snipers platoon commander. How did you find being a leader in that environment? Recon is a specialization. So the, the platoon commanders, even though we're in charge of recon and snipers, we're not sniper qualified. So I did my reconnaissance basic and advanced courses in the back end of 2017, which again, I just love that specialization, that trade. I thought it was just awesome. Being a platoon commander in recon and snipers, it was actually a very challenging year. The platoon had had some cultural issues for, for a number of years. And as I posted into that position, I basically got told that I'm supposed to fix it. And there were some challenging junior NCOs in that platoon. I want to say, though, that not all the people or the guys in that platoon should be tarnished with the same brush. There's challenging people everywhere. When you get into support company, that's usually the more senior soldiers and junior NCOs. They're usually quite alpha type personalities. So, yeah, it definitely came with its challenges. And I ended up having to remove one in particular, which then led to even more challenges throughout the year. But it was the best decision to make for the capability at the time. Definitely don't regret making it. I appreciate there has to be a certain sensitivity and lack of detail you answer this question with, but can you tell me more about that challenge or incidents around the removal that was required there? And then I want to pivot to hear more about some of the rewarding aspects of being in that position, even if you were given the mandate. Get in here and fix the mess. I'm sure there was some you know, highlights and reward out of that as well. There was a particular junior NCO who was actually, I think, an excellent soldier as far as his, his own trade skills. There was a particular incident where we were out field on a certifying exercise and he blatantly lied about the position of his patrol and the conduct of an important task. And as a result, I removed him because I could no longer trust that he would do the right thing when he's not supervised. And for anyone that understands recon platoons, well, you don't supervise your patrol commanders. They are out there on their own doing a task is the nature of the job. And so it needs to be that trust that you know they will do the right thing when they're not being watched. I couldn't trust him anymore. So he was removed from the platoon. He was very well liked by a lot of the younger soldiers. He was very fit, very charismatic sort of guy. And I always think that if he uses his spouse for good, I think he would be a great, great junior NCO. And I do wish him all the best. There's definitely no personal hard feelings there. But as far as the capability was concerned, in my mind, I didn't want the the young soldiers or the guys that were getting looked after by him and led by him to be led astray. Because if they're not doing the right training, if they're cutting corners out in the field, that to me undermines the capability. So I removed him. That then caused uh, a lot of difficulties with, you know, managing then the platoon of people who looked up to him and saw me then as kind of the officer who had remove their friend and why had I done that? And that was definitely a leadership challenge. I think we made it work in the end. And I definitely feel that I handed over that capability to you know the guy that was coming after me in a better state than what I found it in. But it was a, a challenging year. 
a challenging year, but professionally rewarding to have ultimately improved the capability of that platoon. Yeah, it was a, a true pleasure to work with them. And in support company in general, we had a very good group of uh, sergeants and officers. We got along very well and were very tight-knit. So, yeah, it was definitely a rewarding experience. Oh, I agree. The actions of the individuals should have no impact on the reputation and standing of the many. You then become the support company to IC, and that's your last position, I believe, before you discharge in February 2020. Tell me what brought about you deciding to leave the army. TYC is a very um, admin. I mean, anyone who's a captain in the army will know that TYC jobs are fairly, I'd call them boring. Probably not a lot of highlights uh, from that position. I definitely did have the opportunity, you know, to to hopefully help that officer commanding in, in you know, running the, the capability, but nothing really there to mention Eventually, I decided to move on. I felt that it was time for me to do something else. And now is the right time to kind of move on to a civilian life and see where that takes me. And then you ran into a previous guest on this podcast, former commanding officer of the SAS, Ben Pronk, at puppy school. Tell me about that encounter. Yeah, that's right. So Ben was my CEO when I was posted to SASI, and that's how I knew him. And it just by chance, my partner and I bought a new puppy and we're taking him to puppy school in Perth, yeah, in uh, Swanbourne, where I live. And I just, I looked over, um, you know, over my shoulder and there's Ben with his family and, and they just bought a puppy. And, you know, we just started chatting. I mentioned that I was looking to to get out and he um, ended up offering me a job. And so I ended up, yeah, working for him and his partner, Tim Curtis, at Metal Global. So how did you find, Mon, that transfer of skill set from that military realm to the business world? Because this is a big jump, your first career post-military, which has been your whole adult life post-university, but you're still actually, I suppose, working for two ex-army officers. So there's that bit of familiarity in that environment. Yeah. And I think, again, very lucky. Definitely don't think I would enjoy working for a large corporate type company and environment. And especially after coming out of the military, which is a, you know, it's a big bureaucratic beast in nature. It's just the, the way it is. Working for Ben and Tim in a small company has been, has been really great. And yes, it definitely does help. The fact that they both have a military background, it does help with that transition. Interestingly, you know, COVID, I joined them in at the end of Jan and then COVID pretty much hit a couple of months later. That was quite interesting, although I have to say in WA, we really have nothing to complain about because we've been very, very lucky with our experience with COVID and life here has been pretty much normal since about May. So can't complain. Yes, starting full-time civilian work for most people in 2020 would be a very abnormal experience. But yes, I suppose in Perth, it's been a tad more akin to normality. How is it working under Ben and Tim? Is it fun? Is it unbearable? You can be honest here. We won't tell them. (laughs) Working for them, it is very fun. Both extremely high-performing individuals very, very different, you know, I think, which is very funny. They're very different from one another. I think they complement each other very well. And as a result, it makes them good, good business partners. And yeah, working for them, it is, it's been, it's been really great. I understand, Mon, that another passion of yours is climbing. Can you tell me more about that? I've enjoyed climbing for a little while. And I think now as I transitioned out of army, I thought I had more time. I was in the same place, uh, you know, not moving, hopefully for another couple of years. I had more time to kind of invest into climbing and it's really developed into a passion for me. My partner used to be a outdoors guide before he joined the military. So he had, you know, a bit of experience doing that. We went to the Tasman Glacier in New Zealand at uh, the end of last year over Christmas and did some mountaineering. And I just, I'm like, you know, I love, Love the mountains. 
Obviously, Australia and Perth, probably not the best place for that, being quite a flat country. But uh, at the moment, I spend most of my weekends at local crags or climbing gyms, trying to better my skills. The reason why I love climbing, I have to say, is that I think it's a perfect combination of a mental, emotional and physical challenge. So you require, you know, the strength, the technique to conduct the climb. But that's just such a small part of it because for anyone that's done any outdoor climbing, there's so much more to climbing than just the ability to make a certain move, especially if you lead climbing. There's that fear of falling, you know, trying to read the rock, you know, making sure that you've accounted for all the environmental factors that are there. It is just this complex problem you're dealing with. And I think that's why I truly enjoy it. Well, it's a far healthier and more satisfying hobby to be taking up rather than reverting to your childhood antics of skateboarding around nightclubs, which is a total <laughs> possibility if you'd have been doing in Perth at the moment. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I don't think they'd let me skateboard in my club here. Probably not, but I'm sure your parents have looked from afar in Bulgaria and just been really proud of the fantastic career you've had in the Australian military, the new one you're forging in life after, and you made the most of the opportunity that they gave you. Yeah, I'd like to think that I haven't disappointed <laughs> disappointed them too much. Well, Mon, thank you so much for your time today and sharing your insights into selection and your journey. I think your toughness is very inspirational. Thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me, Alex. More of that music in just a moment. We've had many SASR veterans on this show. For more stories of selection in particular, listen to the Season 2 episode, number 36, Mark Donaldson, VC. People will die. It might be you. It might be your mate. It might be the brand new guy. It's going to happen at some stage because there's lots of bullets that fly around or there's, there's dangerous work that we do. And the Season 3 episode, number 68, Harry Moffat. Four helicopters landing under gunfire, coming in, hitting the aircraft, landing at the same time and just taking a split second to look to the left and the right out of the helo and see guys launching out of helos and running towards the gunfire. That's a magic moment. For more on Monica's bosses at Metal Global in Season 3, listen to the episode SAS Leadership with Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. I distinctly remember thinking, I wish I didn't know them quite as well because I knew each of their wives, I knew all of their kids. And I remember thinking, if there is a 50 caliber machine gun on that vessel and it has a, a shot at that helicopter, then not all of us will be coming home. And it was a, quite a, a sort of moving moment. Right at the 11th hour, so just before we were about to launch, we had a call with the Prime Minister who said, go ahead and seize the ship. Then in season four, including a discussion on leadership during the COVID crisis, listen to SAS Leadership Volume 2 with Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. This is the zenith of resilience that you want to aspire to, where you are essentially bulletproof to whatever life throws at you. Guys raced into burning helicopters with detonating explosive charges and ammunition and pulled people out of the wreck. Ben and Tim, and Ben's younger brother, Dr. Dan Pronk, will be back on the show later this season. Subscribe to Life on the Line on YouTube for our video documentary series and video podcasts like my interview with former commando Heston Russell. Watching the guys go out there and do that so often without ever fearing for their own lives, not in any form of cowboy heroism, but just for the fact that we had a job to do. We trusted each other so much and we were more fearful of letting each other down and failing the mission than we were of our own lives. 
and subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcast app, such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at L-O-T-L Pod. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Theme music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Closing music, Edge of the World, by SAS original rock band, The Externals. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. Well, he parked his car outside the Rose Hotel And he headed for the bar And not a wink and ever vessel's smile As he motioned for a jar Well, he ain't been home since 1973 Since he was 17 And by 21 he'd sailed the seven seas But it never seemed that far Come on.